Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. Plus years of public advocacy, the sheer intelligence and humanitarianism of two men stand out. The first is that of my mentor, Ralph Nader. The second is my Discovery Institute colleague and friend, Stephen C. Meyer. I like to say that Stephen is so smart, intelligence shimmers off him like heat waves in the desert. I am pleased that Steve is my guest today. Meyer received his PhD in the philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge. A former geophysicist and college professor, he now directs Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture in Seattle, which he co-founded in 1996. He has co-authored the New York Times bestseller, Darwin's Doubt, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design. He also wrote Signature in the Cell, DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design, which was named a Book of the Year by the Times of London Literary Supplement in 2009, and his newest book, the recently released The Return of the God Hypothesis. Meyer has also been published editorials in national newspapers such as the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the National Post of Canada, the Daily Telegraph of London, and the Los Angeles Times. He's appeared on national television and radio programs such as NBC Nightly News, ABC Nightly News, CBS Sunday Morning, Nightline, Good Morning America, and the Tavis Smiley Show on PBS. He has also been featured in two New York Times front page stories and has garnered attention in other top national media. In 2008, he appeared with Ben Stein in the theatrically released documentary Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. He has also been featured prominently in the science documentaries Icons of Evolution, The Case for a Creator, Darwin's Dilemma, and Unlocking the Mystery of Life, the latter of which was shown on PBS and which Meyer co-wrote with producer Lad Allen. Steve, welcome to Humanize. It's great to be with you, Wesley. Thank you for the introduction. Great to see you. Before we get into the meat of our discussion, what motivated you to engage the controversial issue of intelligent design? Well, it's a, for me, it was a kind of a per- personal quest. I uh, uh, was a young scientist uh, working in the field of geophysics. Uh, I was working for a multinational oil company at the time. A big uh, conference came to the city where I was working uh, at, that was addressing the big discussion, uh, the big questions at the, at the intersection between science and philosophy, questions that had always interested me, things like the origin of the universe, the origin of life. Uh, the origin and nature of human consciousness. And I attended this conference. It was uh, uniquely structured to feature uh, atheists on one side or materialists, and on the other, uh, theists. And uh, there were high-powered world-class people in cosmology and astrophysics debating the origin of the universe, people who were working on the origin of life problem in biology, biochemistry, molecular biology, uh, on both sides of that issue, and then and then philosophers and neuroscientists discussing the origin and nature of consciousness, and these were questions that had fascinated me all through college. I was uh, I double majored in physics and geology, but also took a philosophy minor. So um, at this conference, I was sort of shocked to find that, uh, from my my assessment anyway, it's, it, it looked like the theists had the intellectual initiative. Alan Sandage, great cosmologist. Uh, announced that he had re- uh, he was a longtime religious agnostic and had recently had a religious conversion, in part because of the evidence from his own field pointing to 
a definite beginning to the universe. And then in the panel on the origin of life, there was there were similar uh, kind of intellectual conversions announced. One one uh, biophysicist, Dean Kenyon, announced that he no longer accepted his own leading theory on the chemical evolutionary origin of life, but had instead begun to become sympathetic to what he called the design hypothesis. And I got fascinated in particular with the question of the origin of life. A year later, I was off to grad school to uh, to Cambridge, where I did a master's and later a PhD in the field of philosophy of science with a specialty on the question of origin of life biology. So that's where I started. And what intrigued me most of all about the, the at that time, nascent case for intelligent design was the uh, the, the, the discovery of the digital code in the DNA and the recognition by leading origin of life researchers on all sides of the question that there was not an adequate chemical or materialistic explanation for the origin of the information that the DNA encoded. It turned out to be a hard problem to get from chemistry to true code, and yet DNA contained a code. And I thought that was pretty fascinating and wanted to investigate the question of the origin of the information that was necessary to build new living cells. Let me, let me interrupt you for just a second here. Um, me being <laughs> not an expert, it's it seems to me that you're saying that what really hit you hard was that there seems to be no way to move from chemical existence uh, to life existence through evolutionary means. Am I getting that right? Right. The, the Darwinian idea... Uh, from the 1850s and 60s was that we have these complex living systems. They appear for all the world to be designed. But if we can posit a process that starts with something very simple, we could imagine uh, purely natural processes altering, morphing, changing those very simple, for example, one-celled organisms into something really complex over a long period of time. The great discovery of late 20th century biology is that is and was that the simplest living thing, the, the simple cell, isn't simple at all. It's complex on the order of a an automated chemical, uh, an automated factory. It is uh, it involves the use of information and information technologies that are being used to construct mechanical parts. Um, miniature machines made of proteins, etc. And so, uh, in the in the 19, 1860s, when Thomas Henry Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, characterized life, he said that it was a simple that the the, the the living cell was a simple homogeneous globule of undifferentiated protoplasm. A uh, hundred years later, you fast forward, you're you're coming out of the Watson and Crick revolution, and scientists are realizing that that was uh, unfortunately a very ignorant ignorant thing to say, that we just didn't know what was inside even the simplest living cells. And so you don't start, you can't start with something simple. If you're talking about a process of evolution, you start with something immensely complex, and it's an integrated form of informational complexity that rivals our own, in fact, exceeds our own high-tech digital, the, the technology in our own high-tech digital world. Beyond anything that we could produce right now with AI, in other words. Well, exactly. I mean, there there are, are really precise analogs. For example, we're here in Seattle at the Discovery Institute. We have Microsoft, a great information producing company. Bill Gates has said that DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. That's a hugely suggestive remark because we know from experience that software, in fact, information generally, uh, whenever we find information, whether it's, uh, in, especially in a digital form, whether we're talking about uh, a paragraph in a book or a section of software or hieroglyphic inscription, information always arises from an intelligent source. But it's not just that we have information in the cell, there's a whole complex information processing system. And this, the systems that we observe are very similar to, in, in, their, in their functional logic, to the, the, the information processing that's used in manufacturing today called CAD-CAM, Computer Assisted Design and Engineering, where information is stored and then transmitted and translated and then used to direct the construction of mechanical systems. Uh, Boeing uses this to construct airplane wings and many other things. Uh, and lots of manufacturing centers now use digital information to direct the construction of, of crucial mechanical parts. Um, 
we've discovered that that living cells contain miniature machines. The machines are made of proteins. The proteins are constructed from information stored on DNA through a process of information storage, transmission, and expression that is uh, functionally analogous to our own CAD-CAM systems that we use in, in high-tech manufacturing. So, uh, cell is anything but simple. And that presents a problem. Uh, I want to have you briefly discuss the philosophy of science. Uh, the Watson and Crick revolution was the discovery of DNA, right? It was the, the, uh, the most precise way to say that is that Watson and Crick elucidated the structure of DNA. People did know about DNA before then, but they didn't know what that structure was. And that occurred in 1953, of course. Uh, I think an even an equally or perhaps even greater discovery of even greater significance was what occurred in 1957, 1958, when, when Crick first proposed what's known as the sequence hypothesis. And then over the next five to seven years, molecular biologists on both sides of the Atlantic, in France, in, in England, and in the U.S., uh, determined that the Crick was right, that DNA contains information in an alphabetic or typographic or digital form, at, that, which is to say that the subunits along the interior of the DNA molecule are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written text or the zeros and ones that we use in software, which is to say it's not the chemical properties of those subunits per se. It's not their molecular weight or their shape or their structure, but rather it's their arrangement in accord with an independent symbol convention later discovered and now known as the genetic code that allows the DNA to convey information for building those crucial protein molecules that keep cells alive. And the problem for science, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the philosophy of science says that none of this can have any source outside of known laws of physics. Is that right? Or biology? Right. There was, there was a convention that arose in the late 19th century in the aftermath of the Darwinian revolution, which said that if you're going to be a scientist, you've got to explain everything by purely materialistic processes. Uh, this convention has a name. It's called methodological naturalism or methodological materialism. It's rarely stated explicitly, but it's a kind of assumption that scientists have inherited from the late 19th century. And it's a reasonable sort of uh, uh, rule of thumb for lots of types of science. But when you're attempting to explain the ultimate origin of life or the origin of the universe or uh, the origin of human consciousness, um, and you impose that rule, you may run into a problem because it's logically possible that life arose by strictly materialistic undirected processes. Um, in other words, no mind played a role, but it's also a possibility that a mind did play a role, that life is the product in some way of design, of intelligent design. And given that there are at least two such possibilities, if you have a rule of method that excludes one from the outset of the investigation, you will necessarily elect the other. And <clears throat> um, But the evidence may not support a strictly materialistic origin. You may have actual indicators of the activity of mind in the, in the structure of the thing you're trying to explain. Analogy, um, if you walk into the British Museum and you uh, get to the Assyrian room, you'll see all kinds of interesting artifacts. If, uh, you might also encounter the famous um, Rosetta Stone. Uh, the Rosetta Stone has these interesting etchings. In uh, It took a while, but the archeologists determined that the etchings were actually the same uh, informational text written in three different languages. Now, if you impose the rule of methodological materialism on your investigation, you're going to be forced to say, well, the origin of those etchings is something like wind and erosion or some sort of materialistic force. But in fact, a mind played a role. And we have an indication of that in the information bearing sequences that are etched on the rock. Information, it turns out, in our experience is universally the product of mind. And so the discovery of information suggests uh, not only the, the the activity of a designing mind, but the need to to, um, to not apply that rule of methodological materialism too rigidly, because we may miss the right answer. And our argument when we're looking at the evidence of, of design in living systems, when we're looking at the, that in, those information-rich or information-bearing macromolecules, is that we're looking at a distinctive hallmark of mind, and we need to be open to the possibility, therefore, that mind did play a role, that intelligence did play a role in the origin of life. It's a simple matter of allowing the evidence to lead us 
to the, the most justified conclusion based on our uniform and repeated experience of what it takes to produce information. In other words, if you really are trying to find truth, you have to be open to all explanations. Exactly. Very well said. Much more succinctly put than I put it, Wesley. That's great. No, that's exactly right. Um, you know, opponents of intelligent design claim it's just religion masking a science, but I've always thought of it as a, a heterodox hypothesis, which is challenging, you know, current biological orthodoxy, which is perfectly in keeping with the scientific method. How do you define intelligent design and why do you think there's so much hostility within the biological community to what you're doing? Well, uh, I, the, the definition of intelligent design is straightforward. It's the idea that there are certain features of living systems and the universe that are best explained by a designing intelligence or mind rather than an undirected material process, such as, for example, natural selection and random mutation in the biological realm. Um, the the One of the, the interesting aspects of the way I developed the case for intelligent design, at least I think it is, is that... Um, I very self-consciously used the same method of scientific reasoning that Darwin used in The Origin of Species. Turns out that there's, there, are, there isn't just a scientific method. There are different methods for different types of questions. And questions about historical origins use a, a particular method known as uh, the method of multiple competing hypotheses or inference to the best explanation. And this is the method that I, I use to make the case for intelligent design. I argue that based on our uniform and repeated experience, we know that intelligent agents or minds, uh, that, that information always results from an intelligent agent or a mind. Therefore, the discovery of information at the foundation of life in these large information-bearing molecules provides an indication of the activity of a designing intelligence in the history and origin of life. Now, in making that kind of an argument, I'm actually using the same method of reasoning that Darwin used. I just come to a different conclusion. So if you want to say that uh, <clears throat> scientific hypotheses that are formulated as best explanations uh, in order to explain events in the remote past are not scientific, you would have to say the same thing of the origin of species. And instead, what we really have going on is not uh, two, two competing hypotheses, one which is scientific and one which is not, but rather we have one hypothesis which is strictly materialistic and one which invokes an intelligence. And so the one hypothesis runs afoul of this uh, convention that says that we need to limit ourselves to strictly materialistic explanations. The other does not, and therefore is favored in the current uh, uh, kind of milieu of, of modern science. But again, we want science to be a truth tropic uh, enterprise. We want, it, we want to uh, allow our scientific theorizing to move towards the truth. And if we exclude some possible explanations from consideration, even before we look at the evidence, we're going to get a sub-rational form of, of biology or historical biology. So, See, I would never use a term like truth tropic. <laughs> truth <laughs> what trending. What you're talking truth. about is you want the full truth and nothing but the truth. We want, we want, we want our science to point us to the truth, not just to a, the best explanation within a limited set of possibilities that we're willing to consider. And intelligent design doesn't deny such things as natural selection, does it? Oh, not at all. Uh, we think natural selection, random mutation are real processes. The question in uh, biology is whether they are genuinely creative. They certainly explain a lot of uh, minor variations, uh, finch beaks getting a little bigger or a little smaller in response to changing weather patterns in the Galapagos or uh, the changes in the coloration of peppered moths or antibiotic resistance. The, the question that's arising within evolutionary biology today among, among many leading evolutionary biologists is whether the mutation selection mechanism is generally innovative. Can it, can it produce um, <clears throat> morphological, large-scale morphological innovation, changes in form in the history of life? Many evolutionary biologists themselves are doubting that and have been calling for a new theory of evolution as a result of that. Um, so, so, we think so the traditional kind of neo-Darwinism isn't only under pressure from intelligent design, but from within the biological community that accepts oh, not, a yeah, more exactly, naturalistic not at all. approach. There was, yeah, exactly, Wesley. There's a major conference at the, at, uh, at the Royal Society in London in 2016 uh, uh, called by a number of leading evolutionary biologists. They 
fancy themselves as a kind of a third way. They're they're not supportive of intelligent design, but they think, in the words of one of the biologists, that uh, neo-Darwinism is so early, or actually criticism of neo-Darwinism is so early 90s, one of them put it. Um, it the the neo-Darwinian idea is, is really passe increasingly within evolutionary biologists, and leading evolutionary biologists are recognizing the need for some new models and especially new mechanisms. They think that mutation and selection has limited creative power. There are few holdouts who still are defending mainstream neo-Darwinism, the textbook theory that we all learn, but increasingly there are multiple new mo evolutionary models that are under consideration. I addressed a lot of them in my book, Darwin's Doubt. Isn't there also a, a question, and this is coming from a place of ignorance, but regarding the pace of natural selection, uh, for example, we were always told it takes you know millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years, and I just recently read a story about elephants that supposedly have evolved over the last few years not to have tusks. Now that seems to me to be incompatible with what I was taught in about evolution <clears throat> in uh, college biology class. Well, there are a couple things going on there. You may remember in the late 70s, um, Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge formulated a, an alternative evolutionary model known as punctuated equilibrium. And they were attempting to describe the fossil record more accurately because what we see in the fossil record is long periods of <clears throat> stasis, a lack of directional or evolutionary change punctuated by big bursts of innovation where completely new forms of life arise very, very abruptly from a geological standpoint, at least. And punctuated equilibrium tried to describe that evolutionary pace much more accurately. The problem was that uh, the, the punkeek people, as they were called, never really came up with a mechanism that could account for that amount of change as the, the amount of change that was occurring in the fossil record. The, the pace exceeded any known mechanism's ability to produce um, the innovation that was observed. Um, so it had this kind of catch-22. It did a better job of describing the fossil record, the history of life, but it never came up with a mechanism that is punctuated equilibrium, never came up with a mechanism that could explain how that amount of change could occur so quickly. Um, in the case of things like uh, loss of tusks or uh, eyeless fish or things like that, that's also, that, that's a form of devolution effectively where there are losses of traits and losses of, of, of traits can occur fairly quickly, but it's the, gen, it's the generation of, of new structure that requires time. And there, there really is no evolutionary mechanism that's sufficient to account for those major bursts of innovation that occur in, uh, in, within narrow windows of the geological record. And how does uh, ID, intelligent design, differ from theistic evolution, of which Francis Collins is the most famous proponent? Uh, the 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 TE people, the theistic evolutionists, uh, typically endorse the mainstream evolutionary models uh, without really without questioning any of the the scientific details. So the the sci their science is pretty um, is indistinguishable from the the science of the mainstream uh, neo Darwinists or materialists. Uh, but they they assert that that God is a still exists and and has something to do with the process although they're very they typically are a bit vague about exactly what god has had to do with it we've put that question to our colleagues in the in the theistic evolution uh camp and asked you know what is god doing is god directing the process or not is is when you say theistic evolution do you mean a directed or an undirected process and and uh, most of the proponents of that view have been famously ambiguous or vague about what they think God might be doing. Their science is pretty much uh, indistinguishable from mainstream neo-Darwinism, uh, but they do believe in God. And that's, uh, so that's kind of the position as I understand it. Kind of a way to be respectable and still uh, be theistic. Well, Respectable it's, it, to the science community, I'm not <laughs> saying to most people. It's hard to know the you know the, the the motivations, but it isn't a position I think that has a lot of scientific significance because it's not making any claim that's distinguished distinguishable. Right, it's from not an hypothesis that can be that is uh, capable of being uh, advocated. It's just saying uh, yes, it's it's like the neo Darwinists say, but God is the one who's responsible. Yeah, God is behind it all somehow, right. uh, some in some unspecified way. Right. So it's interesting that. Um, 
the Discovery Institute, we, you know, we're now very familiar with what is called cancel culture, where if people step out of line from the orthodox uh, or from accepted uh, positions, they can be thrown off of faculty, they can have their jobs lost and so forth. Well, Discovery Institute was one of the early victims of cancel culture, and you were involved in one of those uh, experiences. Tell, tell, tell us about that a bit, if you will. Yeah, we like to say that we got canceled before getting canceled was cool. You exactly. Know? So, uh, but <clears throat> I would also say there's been a significant rebound as far as the the, the growth of our of our uh, research network and, and scientific movement. Um, in 2004, I published an article with a journal called "The Proceedings of the Biological Society of Washington." It's the technical peer-reviewed journal of the Smithsonian Institutions, uh, or it's a it's it's published out of the Smithsonian Institution. It's one of the oldest peer-reviewed biology journals in America. Uh, at the time, it was edited by an uh, uh, evolutionary biologist named Richard Sternberg, who had two earned PhDs and uh, one in mathematical biology, another in evolutionary biology. He published over forty peer-reviewed publications himself, and he sent the the article out for peer review when I submitted it. It came back with reviews that were were favorable, but which required certain uh, corrections and um, adjustments. And so I made those and resubmitted, and he accepted it and and, uh, and published it. About a week after it came out, the the <clears throat> the the lid came off the Smithsonian as the as the journal was being delivered to scientists around the country. They suddenly were getting very angry responses. It was an article advocating. Uh, intelligent design is the best explanation for what I call the Cambrian information explosion. Uh, there's a period in the history of life w- known as the Cambrian explosion, where a majority of the animal body plans, the novel body plans, arise in a very abrupt, narrow window of geologic time. And to build all that new animal form, you need a lot of new information, both genetic information, and other forms of biological information. And I argued that uh, that events such as the Cambrian we're actually providing evidence of, of a designing uh, intelligence in the history of life because of the big infusions or bursts of information. Um, there was a uh, uh, an immediate controversy that took place at the Smithsonian. Uh, Sternberg was uh, removed from his role as editor. He was uh, denied access to his office and his scientific samples. He was transferred out from underneath the uh, the the supervision of a friendly uh, supervisor who was also a research colleague and placed in an office next to the museum administrators so they could keep an eye on him <laughs> and there was a uh, a, a very um, angry uh, intense uh, meeting of the the, the a group that oversaw the publication of the journal and the the president of the society that oversaw the publication told Sternberg that he should not attend the meeting, that he couldn't guarantee his personal safety, that the really? tempers were running so high. Good uh, grief. Me- meanwhile, Sternberg also had a, he had a joint appointment at the National Institutes of Health. And uh, apparently someone from the Smithsonian worked the chain of command there to try to get him fired at the NIH. And it took a senator to intervene to save his job there. Uh, so it, it got really intense, and the, the uh, eventually he ended up leaving the Smithsonian. The, the, the work environment was so hostile, uh, but um, it was it's strange. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal about the the controversy, and the the writer said, you know, the, the ironic thing was is that that uh, Sternberg wasn't even the heretic. It, it was this guy Meyer out in the Seattle in Seattle. But since they couldn't get to him, they they took it out on the editor who allowed the the journal to go through peer review. So that, that to me is anti-science. I mean, we hear anti-science thrown around that epithet a lot, but when you're trying to stifle a thoughtful, I mean, it's not like you were saying Jesus Christ came down and created everything. You're, you were positing, and in fact, you've written a book about this, a, a thoughtful alternative hypothesis, which is the point of the scientific method. Science is always subject to challenge or it's not science. Am I right? It should be, absolutely. In fact, this is one of the key things in our culture today is there, there are two different conceptions of science afloat. One is the idea of science as a source of authoritative deliverances. Um, and therefore, we often hear about settled science or consensus science. Um, my contention is that you rarely hear people refer to a consensus in science when there actually is one. Uh, if you're <laughs> invoking a consensus, it's usually to stifle dissenting opinion within right. science. 
And so as soon as someone says, well, that goes against the consensus in science, it's usually because there is dissent that's, that needs to be muffled. Um, and the other idea of science is science is an open form of inquiry that requires competing hypotheses and, and open argumentation about how to interpret evidence or even what the evidence might be in a given situation. And um, there's a wonderful um, Italian philosopher of science named Marcello Pera. And Pera argues that science advances as scientists argue about how to interpret the evidence, that there's a necessary rhetorical dimension to scientific advance. And uh, I think there's a great concern about many issues today, uh, whether it's climate change or the debate about Darwinism or uh, embryonic stem cells or uh, many of the issues that have arisen in response to the, the COVID epidemic um, and, and many issues in medical science uh, where there are more, there are at least two different uh, scientific opinions about a given issue. And it's very important, I think, for the health of science and for the health of our democracy that we allow that rhetorical dimension. We allow scientists to argue about how to interpret the evidence and to, and to weigh competing hypotheses in order to uh, make our best attempt to get to the truth. Uh, if we accept the other definition of science, as science as a, um, a consensus of a few experts, uh, that, that not only stifles scientific advance, but it also, um, it also leads inevitably to a form of scientocracy, where we have right. rule by an elite, a rule, rule by, by an experts, elite few, a technocracy. Who, who may claim to have a consensus, even if there, there doesn't, uh, even if such a consensus doesn't exist, or even if there's a spirited argument that needs to be aired out. The interesting thing is, uh, it used to be that intelligent design was criticized because it wasn't in peer-reviewed journals. And one of the major reasons it wasn't in peer-reviewed journals is that the critics would attack anyone who thought about so publishing as happened with Sternberg. A absolutely. There was a kind of circularity. It's not, it, it's not, you know, before I published, there, you know, Sternberg published my piece, it was uh, intelligent design isn't science because it hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed journal. As soon as it was published, people said, uh, the, the argument at the Smithsonian was it should not have been published in our journal because it isn't science. So it's right. not science because it hasn't been peer reviewed. It can't be peer reviewed because it isn't science. It was a tight little circle of exclusion that kept the idea from consideration, which I think is, as you said, profoundly unscientific because science needs to be open to competing hypotheses. Exactly. And now, you know, cut for fast forward 17 years, uh, ID is often in peer reviewed journals. We, we have nearly 200 peer reviewed articles now that have been published since that time. And, uh, and the, the, the network of scientists uh, advancing the ID hypothesis, not only as an explanation for already known facts, like the presence of molecular machines in cells or the digital code in DNA, but also as a guide uh, intelligent design is increasingly being used as a guide in research, what's called a heuristic, uh, to help make new discoveries and generate testable predictions. So one, for example, one of the, the early predictions that proponents of intelligent design made concerned what was called the, the junk DNA. A, a significant portion of the genome does not code for proteins. In fact, in many species, up to 97% of the genome is not coding for proteins. And the Darwinists initially assumed that, that the sections of DNA were junk. They performed no function, and they were just the leftovers of the random mutation selection trial and error process. Our team said, well, we accept that mutation and selection are real processes. We accept that, that there would be accumulations of mutation over time. But on our theory, if information is the product of intelligence, um, <clears throat> then we would not expect to see the, the vast majority of the genome as junk and only 3% as, 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 as signal. That the, the noise to signal ratio was off. And we predicted that, that not, those non-coding regions would turn out to be importantly functional. And Richard Sternberg was one of the first scientists who began to, to uh, write papers about the function of the, of the non-coding regions. And in 2011, there was a publication of a massive uh, federally funded study in genomics called the ENCODE Project that validated the prediction that we had made. So one of the things we're showing is that intelligent design isn't just a good after-the-fact explanation of facts we already have. It also helps us uh, make predictions and it is a, a guide to discovery that helps us learn about 
how life is really structured much more quickly than we would have been operating out of a Darwinian mindset. Right. And just for full disclosure, uh, Sternberg is now with the Discovery Institute. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And some uh, of our I, best scientists know, are refugees of the, uh, the, the scientific cancel culture. Um, an- another dimension is uh, uh, Gunter Beckley, the a very prominent German paleontologist who in 2016 announced that he had come to accept the theory of intelligent design and was told that he was no longer welcome at uh, the museum, uh, the, the Natural History Museum where he worked in Germany, but he's now he's, he's now one of our leading research scientists at Discovery as well. It's too bad that they uh, can't stand competition, isn't it? It's uh, for us. It's a it's a buyer's market. You know, yeah. an opportunity to acquire <laughs> high level talent. You know, let's get into your current book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. I'm very interested in the subtitle: Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind of the Universe. Is mind, in Stephen Meyer's mind, uh, a synonym for God? It is in this case. It's the mind behind the universe. I don't want to say that the universe is a mind. Uh, one of the the worldviews that I critique as being an inadequate explanation for those three big discoveries is pan- pantheism or panentheism. Um, so, um, I, 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 what I argue in the book is that not only do we have evidence of a mind, an un, 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 a mind of some unspecified kind, but when we look at the evidence, not just from biology but also from physics and cosmology. Uh, the, 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 the character of the mind required to explain the, the big discoveries that have been made about biological and cosmological origins uh, is trend, a transcendent mind. We need a, a, a transcendent intelligence that can affect the whole of the universe, bringing it into existence and, and providing uh, the structure of the universe, what physicists call the fine-tuning from the very beginning. So when I published... Signature in the cell, and then Darwin's doubt. A number of people said, "Well, okay, you've argued for intelligent design. Who do you think that designing intelligence is, and what can science tell us about that?" Uh, one hy- possible hypothesis is that we're looking at a designing intelligence within the cosmos, a space alien of some kind, and no less a personage in science than Francis Crick. Um, Richard Dawkins has also floated the idea that that uh, maybe the signature of intelligence that we see in life is a consequence of some intelligence out in uh, you know the cosmos that itself evolved by purely natural processes in the book i argue that that's a weak explanation for the origin of the information necessary to build the first life because it just begs the question is the ultimate origin of life uh, namely the origin of that the, the the evolutionary process that produced that space alien but that hypothesis certainly can't explain the origin of what physicists refer to as the fine tuning of the universe which has been present from the very beginning of the universe or soon after no being within the cosmos could it could uh, have produced the the uh, exquisitely designed physical parameters that make its very life possible. Similarly, no being within the cosmos could explain the origin of the universe itself. To explain those two classes of uh, information that we have about cosmological origins, we need to invoke an, a transcendent form of intelligence. So I do. I am making a God argument in this new book. It is a God argument, but you're not preaching, um, uh, you're a Christian, and you're not uh, preaching the Trinity in this book. No, the, I don't think the evidence from science can settle the intramural discussion among different uh, monotheists, for example. Um, the argument I make is, is uh, an argument for theism as opposed to, for example, materialism or pantheism or uh, the space alien hypothesis. But it doesn't, it, uh, I don't think from this, the scientific evidence can settle the, the uh discussion, the, 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 the intermural religious discussion between the, the various monotheistic traditions. I think that's something that has to be adjudicated in some other way. So you say there are three scientific discoveries that reveal the mind of the universe, uh, which we're calling God. Um, uh, I think the space alien issue is kind of just kicking the can down the road because you then have to go, how did the space alien come into being? Exactly. You know, at, and you, at some you, point, you, you, you still get to have the, to confront that ultimate question of the origin the of the information necessary to get life going and therefore to get any evolutionary process going subsequent to that. And what are the three scientific discoveries that, and how does it uh, reveal that, that there is this transcendent mind? Uh, well, the, the three that I address in the book are that uh, 
the universe had a beginning. The universe, the material, the material universe of matter, space, time, and energy had a beginning. Uh, and this is the gravamen of modern cosmology. Um, the second- um, is that, That's the Big Bang, right? The Big Bang, yeah. The Big Bang uh, reveals, the Big Bang and what physicists describe as the cosmological singularity. The Big Bang has been established by evidence and observational astronomy, but there's a parallel line of, of scientific development in theoretical physics suggesting that the universe uh, also had a beginning and a couple different uh, types of um, uh, physical uh, arguments or proofs that, that uh, reinforce that conclusion. And then secondly, in physics, uh, starting in the 1950s and 60s, physicists began to discover that there are many basic physical parameters of the universe that fall within very narrow tolerances and must do so to allow for a life conducive universe. So the expansion rate of the universe or the force that drives the expansion of the universe or the uh, the strength of gravitational attraction or electromagnetic attraction or the, the underlying strong and weak nuclear forces, all of these different forces have to fall within very narrow tolerances to allow for a, a life-friendly universe. Um, the, 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 the masses of elementary particles. And so some physicists now describe the universe as a kind of, our universe is a Goldilocks universe where we have the, the forces of ex pushing the universe outward are not too strong, not too weak. The same with the gravitational forces, the, the elementary particles are not too light, not too heavy, uh, the speed of light, not too fast, not too slow. All these different physical parameters have to fall within very narrow tolerances. And in fact, they do. And that's known as the the anthropic fine tuning of the universe. And the question and what is, would what happen if they that? didn't? What would happen what, if they didn't? Well, in the case, uh, in each case, there would be a, a a dramatic and deleterious physical consequence. So the the outward pushing force that's responsible for the expansion of the universe is known as the cosmological constant. If that uh, that um, parameter is fine tuned to one part in ninetieth power, is a is a commonly accepted one part to the one part in ten to the ninetieth power. Um, so a little smidge uh, stronger, and we'd get uh, a heat death of the universe where everything would, all the energy would dissipate so much that it would be impossible to form stable galaxies, planetary systems, or anything else. But if it were a little bit smaller by a smidge, we'd get a recollapse of the universe, and we'd all, that the universe would exist as a giant black hole, again, not conducive to life. And so in each case, there's a there's a if if uh, kind of if it's too much this way, there's one 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 bad consequence. If it's too much the other way, a different bad consequence. And the physicists have worked a lot of this out. The fine tuning itself is not controversial at all. Uh, the question is, how do you explain it? A, a common sense interpretation, as Sir Fred Hoyle, the great astrophysicist, put it, is that a uh, a super intellect has monkeyed with physics and in chemistry to make life possible. Um, an alternative explanation that's been proposed is something called the multiverse. The idea that, yes, getting all these parameters just right would be incredibly astronomically, exponentially improbable. But if we can posit enough other universes out there, then we can we can imagine that our universe just happened to be the lucky one among all those those different possibilities. And so See, that's, that's I've, I've always kind of laughed at the multiverse issue because, A, there's no evidence for it. And B, it seems to me to be a way to try to get around exactly what you're dealing with, which is that there is a mind behind it all. Well, and there's another another uh, underappreciated problem with the multiverse hypothesis. If we just have all these other universes out there and they're causally disconnected from our own, then those universes don't affect anything that happens in our universe, including whatever processes were at work that set the, the, the fine-tuning parameters to have the values that they do. In virtue of that, multiverse hypotheses or uh, proponents have, have re they've recognized that problem and they've proposed universe generating mechanisms. So there would be a kind of underlying causal, uh, common cause for all the universes. Uh, so we could portray, and in so doing, they could they can then kind of portray our universe as the lucky winner of a giant cosmic lottery. Uh, and again, then we just happen to be the lucky one. Problem is, even in theory, these universe generating mechanisms require exquisite fine tuning of their own. 
in order to generate new new universes. And so the universe, the, the multiverse hypothesis doesn't actually explain away the ultimate source of fine tuning. It just pushes it out of view back one generation. And I think this is one of the themes of the book is that is that uh, modern scientific materialism or atheism is is <clears throat> getting to a place of special pleading, whereas there's a simple, coherent explanation, namely a transcendent intelligence who is active in the creation that explains the origin of the universe, the origin of the fine tuning, and the origin of the information that's necessary to life. Those are the big three um, facts that I think need to be explained. Um, modern scientific atheism is now invoking space alien designers, multiverse hypotheses um, in cosmology. And I, uh, the idea is that you presuppose prior laws of physics before there's any physics at all, and somehow have the universe coming out of mathematical equations. Um, but in our experience, math is causally inert. It's something we use to describe things. Math doesn't cause things to happen. And then you have other bizarre hypotheses like um, the, the simulation hypothesis that says the entire universe is a simulation in the mind of a- The matrix. A, a yeah, the, exactly. A 23-year-old in his pajamas some, in some other universe. You know, So um, atheism is getting really bizarre. And I think it's, uh, it's failing the test of Occam's razor. Uh, in, in, I was going to get to that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating that uh, the actual science and the, uh, and the, the scientific method has actually pushed the people who were originally, let's say, on top of the heap into some very difficult corners that they're having a, a hard time extracting themselves from. Yeah, exactly. And I, I explore a number of these uh, counter arguments to the God hypothesis in the last uh, quarter of the book. And one of the themes there is that um, some of them have uh, are implausible on their face or they have conceptual incoherencies like the multiverse uh, attempting to explain the fine tuning, but only doing so by positing other prior unexplained fine tuning. And then uh, others of these uh, atheistic hypotheses have implications that um, destroy our confidence in practical reason. So they generate what are called Boltzmann brains. You know, the, and uh, so there, there is a, I go into this in a lot more detail. It's, it's, it's kind of fun to read some of these really speculative hypotheses, but formulating such speculative hypotheses is precisely what atheism or scientific materialism is now being uh, pressed to do because of the, the discoveries that have been made in modern science that seem instead on their face to support not only an intelligent design hypothesis, but a design hypothesis that involves a transcendent intelligence that has the attributes that, for example, religious Jews and Christians and other theists have long attributed to God. You write there are four primary worldviews, and let's just be really brief here. First one is naturalism, which I think we've discussed, which would be like materialism. All there right. is is what we can see and measure and 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 test, right? Yes, yeah, the idea that matter and energy are the prime realities, the things from which everything else came, and those entities are eternal and self-existent. They had no beginning or end. So in materialism, matter and energy uh, play the the same role that God plays in a theistic worldview as the what philosophers sometimes call a, the the primitive or the prime reality, the thing from which everything else comes, but which is the prime mover, if you will, to use the Aristotelian. So the material was eternally existing, eternally existent, right? The second is pantheism. Yeah, pantheism is the idea that there is a God, but the but God uh, the the God of pantheism is. Um, is coextensive with matter and has no uh, conscious attributes. God is not a person or an agent or a mind. God is a kind of a mystic unity that binds together all of material reality. So God is in the matter. The matter is God. Um, a, a, a problem for pantheists is explaining, for example, that pantheism has many of the same explanatory challenges as materialism does because God is essentially coextensive with matter. And so if the material universe itself has a beginning. Uh, materialism uh, lacks uh, causal adequacy with respect to that. That is to say, before, if the universe, the physical universe of matter, space, time, and energy came into ex existence a finite time ago, then before that, there was no matter to do the causing, and therefore nothing that we could invoke, materialistically speaking, to explain the origin of the universe. 
pantheism has much the same problem because if the universe had a, a beginning, then before the beginning of the, the material universe, uh, there was no there was no pantheistic God. If God and matter are coextensive, then if matter comes into existence a finite time ago, so does God. And before that, neither matter nor God conceived of in a, in a pantheistic way could account for. So the something of the came out of nothing. Yes, exactly. The third is theism, which I think we've covered. And the fourth is deism. Uh, explain deism. Yeah, deism is the idea that there is a God who has a mind, who is a, a conscious agent, who brought the, the, the uh, physical or material universe into existence. Um, <clears throat> deism could do a nice job of explaining the origin of the universe itself because uh, an, it posits an entity separate from the universe with causal powers independent of the universe that could have brought the universe into existence and even explained because the pantheistic God is an intelligence uh, it could also explain the evidence of design from the beginning of the universe, the fine-tuning, for example. Uh, where deism falls down as an explanation or becomes inadequate is evidence of any evidence for the activity of a designing agent after the beginning of the universe. And since we have discrete events in the history of life in our planet where we have these big bursts or infusions of information into our biosphere, and I've argued that the information being a hallmark of mind suggests the activity of designing intelligence long after the beginning of the universe when those bursts of information occur, deism fails as an explanation for evidence of design that we have in, in our biosphere long after the beginning. Whereas theism uh, affirms a God who not only created the universe at the beginning, but also acts after the beginning. And therefore, in the in the, the case I make in the book is that theism provides the most comprehensive and adequate explanation of these three big uh, classes of evidence. It can explain the origin of the universe from nothing physical at the beginning. It can explain evidence of design from the beginning because theism involves a conscious agent uh, that transcends the universe. But theism also posits a God who is active in the creation after the beginning and therefore can uh, explain the origin of the information and other indicator, indicators of design that we have after the beginning of the universe. Let me ask you this. Some listeners may be thinking, oh, this is all very interesting theoretically, but why does it matter? Why does it matter to me? You've written a lot about human exceptionalism. Yes. And one of the key concepts in our Western civilization is the idea that human beings uh, have an intrinsic dignity, which is a consequence of their creation. Uh, our founding documents say uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Our whole Western system is based on the idea that rights uh, are a consequence of an intrinsic dignity that we possess as a consequence of the fact of our creation, that we were intended by a supreme valuer who, uh, who values each individual human life, and that therefore rights are not something that can be granted by a government or taken away by a government. They're something that are given to us uh, by the as a consequence of the fact of our creation. Um, this has been the basis of, of Western concepts of human rights going back all the way to the Magna Carta and before. And um, I think that the worldview of scientific materialism, which in the late 19th century came ascendant and has begun to replace traditional theism as the uh, worldview framework for Western um, civilization and therefore law and culture, I think poses a grave threat to that idea of um, intrinsic human dignity. We've seen that in, in, many, in, in many of the, the, uh, the, the uh, issues that you've taken on. If we look at ra the radical animal rights movement, it's, it's predicated on a Darwinian idea that there is no qualitative difference between humans and other forms of animals. And uh, a consequence of that is often we elevate animals, but at the same time, we often devalue humans. And, uh, and so I think that's just one of many reasons why the, uh, the, the reality of God as opposed to a concept of God really matters to our, our, whole, our whole way of life. Absolutely. And there, there are real problems in terms of materialism because we're a moral species. I, I hit that hammer quite a bit. Um, we're the only known moral species in the universe, actually. Uh, animals are amoral. Uh, they, they don't know right from wrong. 
I mean, they can be trained to, you know, don't get on the couch, but that, you know, it's not the same thing. They don't it's have stimulus moral response code. for them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They don't right. have moral codes that they've worked through, uh, through rational means. Uh, and, and if, if all there is, is materialism and, and, uh, uh as I like to put it, all there is is what we see is news, you know, news, weather, and sports. That's it. There's nothing else. You end up in a situation of nihilism, which I think we we have seen break through in the 20th century and beyond. Uh, and you also have a, a circumstance where the it seems to me the default positions will be hedonism and utilitarianism, neither of which are create a healthy society. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, Wesley, there's so many different uh, consequences of a materialistic philosophy that we could explore, but you may remember that just earlier this summer, the great physicist uh, Steven Weinberg passed away, Nobel laureate from University of Texas, previously at Harvard. And Weinberg was a staunch scientific materialist and atheist, a great physicist for whom I have a tremendous admiration. Uh, but in his philosophy, he was staunchly materialistic, and he was quoted as saying, the more the universe seems comprehensible, and he meant to our science, the more it seems pointless. And I think materialism has led naturally to a form of nihilism, uh, especially among young people. And the, the profession of uh, uh, materialistic nihilism from uh, professors who have, have expressed this I think have had an outsized influence on the on the thinking of a lot of young people. We have a um, an e epidemic levels of, of uh, teen suicide in our country. We have uh, young people, and we've had some tragic cases of that uh, close at hand in our in our uh, community here, including the school where my my kids went. And it turned out that m many times these cases of of uh, teen suicide are among uh, young people who have great prospects. Uh, they come from affluent families. But uh, as I've learned more about them, uh, they, the, many of these cases involve kids with a kind of metaphysical angst, wondering if their lives have any meaning. They don't feel that they were intended. They weren't created by anyone who intended them. And they don't believe that at the end of their lives, there will be anything other than the heat death or a, you know, the old maxim of the materialist, when you die, you rot. And uh, th this sort of vision of reality is profoundly dispiriting and depressing for young Very. people. And now, you're, if you're, it's true, we all have to face it. But the argument in my book is that it's not true. And, science, and, and it's based on evidence. It's not based on faith. Yeah, exactly. The, ev the evidence is pointing us to the reality of a transcendent intelligence and creator. And, um, and therefore, the more the universe seems pointless, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it doesn't seem pointless. It's, it's pointing to uh, uh, a benevolent creator who, who who intended us, and that's a very different worldview, and it's uh, I, I think it's one that we need to to defend again. Yeah, I agree with you. In fact, in terms of young people, I I, I saw a, a story just the other day. An increasing number of young people are thinking human beings were a mistake that we should never have actually existed. Right. There's there's another professor in Texas, Eric Pianca, who says that uh, for as a matter of environmental policy, that 90% of the, the population should simply commit suicide to preserve the planet. Um, and this is another form of materialistic thinking. Um, but I, I, wa I wanted to return to your point about the moral aspect of, of, of our natures. Um, one of the problems philosophically with materialism is that it has had a very hard time justifying any kind of objective moral code. Um, if morality is nothing more than an instinct that was programmed into human beings to aid the survival of the human species in toto, um, and if I as an individual human being know that, um, I have no longer any reason to obey the moral code when it cuts against my specific or personal interests. Uh, if the instinct to rape and pillage and the instinct towards altruism are both a consequence of the evolutionary process, the evolutionary process really can't tell me which of the two is moral and which is not. It's in both cases, they're just instincts. So whatever is, is right in an evolutionary ethic. And this has been a problem in moral philosophy for people who want to uh, use evolution as the basis for ethics, it really doesn't stand its own exposure. As soon as I know that that the evolutionary, or that, that moral instincts, moral, uh, the, the conscience is just an evolutionary instinct, 
uh, if I can reason it through and find out that it's in my interest to take the money and abscond to some South American country. Um, and in fact, that will actually allow me to perpetuate my genes better, then I really don't have any reason not to do that. So I don't think um, ev evolutionary thinking grounds the, the, the moral framework that we need for a healthy society or even for individual flourishing. And as you said, what matters, obviously, is what's true. And your three books, and the, and the most recent one in particular, um, you are saying that there is a good scientific basis not just faith, not just having a born-again experience or something, a metaphysical kind of um, noetic experience, but that there is evidence, scientifically testable evidence for your theory. Right. Um, you asked me a minute ago, why does this matter? And so I was, uh, I've been explaining what I think some of the consequences of mater materialistic thinking are. Um, but it's a, an independent question as to whether materialism or theism provides a better explanation for the evidence that we have. And the argument of my book is that the evidence supports a theistic worldview, uh, right. and that materialism has failed as a as a um, as a worldview or as a, a a larger metaphysical hypothesis. It can't explain the key evidences that we have about cosmological, physical, and biological origins. I think materialists don't understand how precarious their position is. If just one event in the history of the world is outside of the realm of these natural forces, then by definition, materialism is false. If it's there an was inadequate one, philosophy, absolutely. Yeah. If there was one miracle, if there was one, quote, supernatural, close quote, event that actually happened, then materialism collapses. And there are millions of people alive today, many of whom are maybe listening to this podcast, who have had such experiences. I've had such experiences. And those experiences demonstrate to people who have had them that there is more to life than news, weather, and sports, that there is something beyond what we can comprehend necessarily um, through uh, physics and through testing. Uh, but, but you're actually saying we can actually test for these things because we can uh, see that things are based on information and so forth that we didn't used to know. Yeah, the evidence, I think, points strongly towards uh, a pre-existing mind as an explanation for the origin of life and, indeed, for the origin of the universe. Um, it's uh, it, it's, it's um, pretty interesting. Uh, Steven Pinker's wife, uh, her name is um, Goldstein, and she uh, was in an interview, and she said that she had this incredible, uh, what we might call metaphysical experience and which she was convinced that somebody who had died was communicating with her. And, and there was no other explanation for it. And it sent her into a tizzy because it violated the known laws of, of the universe and her materialistic mindset. And she said, this is a quote, uh, once, in fact, I had a very strange experience where I seemed to be getting information from a dead person. I racked my brain trying to figure out how this could be happening. I did come up with an explanation for how I could reason this away. That's not a scientific approach. She goes on, but it was a very powerful experience. If it could truly be demonstrated that there was more to a human being than the physical body, this would have tremendous implications. And that's the implications that she didn't want to face because it would send her entire materialistic view of the world into a tizzy. I think you, with many, many classes of phenomena, you quickly get into the Shakespearean, there are more things under, under heaven and earth than have appeared, occurred to you in your philosophy, you know, kind of problem. Right, and Dawkins is actually, you know, the famous uh, atheism proselytizer, Richard Dawkins, the biologist. He has written more than once, and I've criticized him in print for it, he wished that he could find a hybrid species between man and chimp to prove that human exceptionalism was false. There yeah. is this yearning desire to reduce the importance of human beings, because if we are as important and unique uh, and precious as Western civilization claims, which is, of course, the basis for universal human rights, an objective view right. of what matters is being human, then, uh, then, then the entire worldview that they espouse collapses. And so they really do want to tear down 
uh, much of Western civilization's uh, uh, long fought for and long struggled for concept of equality. Well, Dawkins himself has expressed quite a lot of cognitive dissonance about his stated uh, scientific atheism and materialism. This summer, he uh, tweeted, uh, having, having seen an animation of the information processing system inside the cell, he said he was knocked sideways with wonder at the complexity of the data processing system at work inside cells. He's uh, been quoted as saying that the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. Um, and in the movie Expelled, when he was interviewed by Ben Stein, he acknowledged that, quote, no one knows how life first began from an evolutionary point of view. And he speculated that there might be a signature of intelligence in the cell that was indicating it's designed by an alien intelligence from outer in outer space. And and I think this underscores the point I was making before is that the evidence that we have is pointing us clearly to mind. And the atheists are now having to grapple with that. And the way they're doing so is often often involves highly speculative, uh, counterintuitive types of hypotheses that we wouldn't accept as credible in any other realm of experience. One last question before we go. We don't yet know what consciousness is, do we? Well, this is a huge, uh, we, we have a direct introspective awareness of our consciousness and the powers of our minds, but we do not have anything like a materialistic or neurochemical explanation for consciousness. And I think it's another uh, very significant realm of investigation that is challenging materialism and the number of good books about the evidence for um, what is sometimes called mind-body dualism, the idea that the brain is an organ of thought that's used by the mind. Uh, an excellent neuroscientist uh, and neurosurgeon, Michael Egnor, has done a number of e excellent videos recently, in fact, two in our Science Uprising series that might be interesting if people want to explore some of those ideas more. But I think the idea that you can reduce human consciousness to the chemistry of the, of the brain is... Uh, is not credible. And there seems to be quite a bit more to what it means to be a human being than just uh, synapses and, and electrochemical impulses. Exactly. And the reason that, uh, that you are so, uh, you anger so many people is you're challenging worldviews with the hypotheses and evidence you're producing. Well, thank you, Wes. What we're, we're, we're trying to, to uh, open minds to realities that have been, I think, suppressed since the late 19th century. And the science of the 21st century, I think, is taking us back to reaffirm some things that we had long forgotten, the reality of God and the uniqueness of human beings, uh, the exceptionalism. Uh, as as the old song says, uh, let the sun shine in. It was great being with you, and uh, I know we're going to hear more from you in the near future. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.